Welcome to the OKC First podcast. Together, we're learning to do three things. Friendship with God. Friendship with one another. And open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. Today's scripture comes from Habakkuk, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4a. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not listen? O cry to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see wrongdoing and look at trouble? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law becomes slack, and justice never prevails. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well read, even if it is a bizarre passage of scripture and a very strange place to end that particular scripture. Justice never prevails. We are in a relatively new sermon series uh, called The Dead Prophets Society. And as you can tell, it will have something to do with the movie that was actually released in 1989. It makes me feel old every time I say it. Uh, starring Robin Williams, who plays Mr. Keating. And I have said this to you, I, I don't necessarily want to somehow equate the message of the movie with a gospel message. That's not what I'm doing. I am willing to say to you, though, that there are some times when Mr. Keating does play a pretty compelling prophet. Remember, prophets don't predict the future so much as they interpret your present they are speaking for God, and sometimes we hear them speaking to God. That will happen today, and I'll, I'll use the same analogy that I used last week. You take a prophet with you to the racetrack, the horse racetrack, the dog racetrack, and whatever else races where you can bet. That prophet is not going to tell you who's going to win the race. That prophet's going to say, gambling will wreck your house. Gambling will wreck your house. And so that's what prophets do. They sort of measure the distance between where we are and where God wants us to be. Prophets also had a way, now you won't hear it so much in Habakkuk's voice today, but you do hear it in Jeremiah, you hear it specifically in Isaiah. You remember one of my favorite passages is where Isaiah, uh, speaking for the people to God, is saying something like this, we keep fasting and you don't even seem to notice, God. We keep doing all of these things that we know we're supposed to do and our situation doesn't get better shines a light on what we have for a long time, I think, whether we've wanted to or not, what we have a long time kind of harbored in our Christian faith heart, that if we will do A, B, and C, God is somehow obligated to do D. And that's a really dangerous thing for a lot of reasons, for a lot of reasons. It, it reduces this relationship with God into something that is not a relationship, right? God becomes some sort of a cosmic vending machine or worse, a genie of some kind, and actually we're God in that situation. But the other thing it does is it makes us uh, look in very, very unhealthy ways at pain or defeat or failure or the marginalized. It makes us look at very in very unhealthy ways at those people because if we are living by the equations, if we think that faith is done by the numbers, by the equations, then we look around and we go, well, I wonder what they didn't pray about. I wonder what they did to have this calamity befall their houses. I wonder, I wonder what they did to deserve 
these things that are happening to them, or maybe we soften it and we say, I wonder what they didn't do, and now they are suffering these things. Faith by the numbers, faith by equations, it makes no sense. It makes about as little sense as, as poetry by the numbers. This is a, a passage maybe that you will remember or in a scene you'll remember. Open your text, page 21 of the introduction. Mr. Perry, will you read the opening paragraph of the preface entitled Understanding Poetry? Understanding Poetry by Dr. J. Evans Pritchard, Ph.D. To fully understand poetry, we must first be fluent with its meter, rhyme, and figures of speech, then ask two questions. One, how artfully has the objective of the poem been rendered? And two, how important is that objective? Question one rates the poem's perfection. Question two rates its importance. And once these questions have been answered, determining the poem's greatness becomes a relatively simple matter. If the poem's score for perfection is plotted on the horizontal of a graph, and its importance is plotted on the vertical, then calculating the total area of the poem yields the measure of its greatness. A sonnet by Byron might score high on the vertical, but only average on the horizontal. A Shakespearean sonnet, on the other hand, would score high both horizontally and vertically, yielding a massive total area thereby revealing the poem to be truly great. As you proceed through the poetry in this book, practice this rating method. As your ability to evaluate poems in this manner grows, so will, so will your enjoyment and understanding of poetry. Excrement. That's what I think of Mr. J. Evans Pritchard. We're not laying pipe talking about poetry. How can you describe poetry like American bandstand? Well, I like Byron. I give him a 42, but I can't dance to it. Now, I want you to rip out that page. Go on. Rip out the entire page. You heard me. Rip it out. Rip it out. Go on. Rip it out. Thank you, Mr. Dalton. Gentlemen, tell you what, not just tear out that page, tear out the entire introduction. I want it gone. History, leave nothing of it. Rip it out. Rip. Be gone, J. Evans Pritchard, PhD. Rip, spread the tear, rip it out. I want to hear nothing but ripping of Mr. Pritchard. We'll perforate it, put it on a roll. Not the Bible, you're not going to go to hell for this. Make a clean tear, I want nothing left of it. Rip it out, rip! Oh man, I love that. I love that. It's not the Bible. You're not going to go to hell for this. Now, what he is trying to say to them no, poetry is more than just the equations that you would attach to it. If this message actually sinks in, and it looks like it does in the movie, then they actually have an expanded relationship with art and with poetry that they would not have had otherwise. And similarly, I think prophets say, no, it's not about these canned equations. No, it's not a, you hear this a lot in the news recently, a quid pro quo. It's not. 
It's not if you do this, then somehow God is obligated to do this. No, it is much more relational than that. Prophets were trying to say to the people of God, if they would listen, this God, this God is a passionate God. This God is a jealous God. This is a God of relationship. This God, this God seeks more of you than you want to give. This is not just a business relationship. This is a love relationship. This is a relationship of passion, of passion. But we will see that even for the prophet, Habakkuk, even for the prophet, it's hard to kind of keep these equations at bay. They seem to somehow always want to creep into our imagination. Let me warn you a couple things before we get into this book, before we get into this passage. Um, First of all, Dr. Bratcher, um, Dennis Bratcher, wrote his dissertation about these same verses that we're going to be listening to today, and he has been a huge help to me. Uh, there, this is, I don't know if I've ever preached a different <laughs> sermon, uh, another sermon out of the book of Habakkuk. Uh, I will say, too, that part of that's because I think it's hard to preach any verse out of Habakkuk without even uh, having some idea of what all of it says. So we are actually going to survey all three chapters. I promise we'll get out of here by 1.30. I promise we'll be out of here by then. But I also want you to put on the kind of the same uh, equipment that you had on when we are working through some of those most difficult Lament Psalms in the last series, where it seemed like, if you were paying attention, if you were leaning in and paying attention, it seemed like, in a similar sort of way, we were being told by the singers, by the artists way back when. We're being told that, no, this is a relationship. And since it is a relationship, there is room for you to be disappointed. Today, it's, it's not a singer, it's a prophet, someone that we know had a specific role in even an office as it had to do with the people of God. These were leaders amongst the people of God who were hearing God's voice and then translating for the people, and even this prophet, who probably, who knows, a thousand times, we don't have a whole lot more about Habakkuk's ministry amongst the people of Israel, we don't know a whole lot about him. But maybe there were a thousand other times that we don't have recorded in Scripture where he would have said something like that, something like Isaiah said, like like Jeremiah said to the people, like, you cannot reduce this connection with God to an equation. But what we have today is a giant lament psalm. What we have today is the prophet himself struggling, struggling, struggling with whether or not God is fair. What we have today is another passage of scripture that permissions honesty and audacity and transparency in your relationship with God. And can I tell you something? Your relationship with God will be stronger and your life of faith will be stronger if these three words can be used to describe it. Honesty, audacity, transparency. If there is somehow in your textbook of faith an introduction that leads you to believe, that leads you to believe that no, all of this is by the numbers and there are equations to it and if you'll do A, B, and C, then God is obligated to do D. Rip it out. (laughs) But that process perhaps takes a little bit longer than I'm letting on because even here, even here, even here the prophet seems to be struggling with that same introduction. Take a look at this. Let me give you some idea of where we're at, historically speaking. We're we're roughly where we were last week with Jeremiah. Uh, The Babylonians are moving 
quickly, gobbling up territory, uh, embarrassing people, humiliating people, conquering them, mutilating them, harming them. I mean, everything is happening pretty quickly now. So a rough contemporary of Jeremiah's is saying something of, similar to what Jeremiah is saying. Habakkuk is saying, God, are you paying attention? Don't raise your hand. Have you ever prayed that prayer? God, are, are you paying attention? Are, are you aware of what I am going through, what we are going through? Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not listen or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see this wrongdoing or look at trouble? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. And then, <laughs> I want you to be ready for what it is that the prophet says to God. Before I do, though, have you ever had people say to you, how dare you say such things to God? Maybe no one's ever said it to you, but you kind of still feel it. There are rules that govern how you should address this God. That's why you should always pray in the King James language. Be thou, those kinds of things, right? I think those people probably have not read Habakkuk. Because here in the Bible, unless this becomes another part that we need to rip out for some reason, here in the Bible, as we have it, we have words that might make a few of us blush. Words that if we heard a loved one, especially someone younger than us, say these sorts of things to God, we might say, watch your tongue. We watch this. So the law becomes slack and justice never prevails. The wicked surround the righteous, therefore judgment comes forth perverted. What? And by the way, this is, this is the prophet speaking to God. Now, our preaching text actually skips all the way to the second chapter, but let me fill in the gaps for you so you know how we get to chapter two. Then Habakkuk launches into God. Launches, saying, God, in case you're too busy to know what's going on around here, let me tell you what the, what the Babylonians do when they come through. And yes, it's, it's artistic, it's, it's poetry at some level, it's verse, and yet, the images are stark. The Babylonians come through and they rout, rout everything. And the man of God, the person of faith, is saying to God, you've got to do better. <laughs> you okay? <laughs> you gotta do better, God. Are you, are you paying attention? Something has to get better here. Verse 12. Are you not from old, O Lord my God, my Holy One? You're not going to die. Lord, have you not marked them for judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for punishment? Ready for the sarcasm? But your eyes are too pure to behold evil, and you cannot look on wrongdoing. Why do you look on the treacherous and are silent when the wicked swallow those more righteous than they? So God, I get it. You're going to punish us for not being your people because we have not done these things. We have not cared for the poor. We have not cared for one another. We have not done the things that good, God-following people are supposed to do. God, have you seen the Babylonians? Do you know what they do? We're in trouble? What about them? 
What about them? Don't raise your hand, but have you ever asked that question? What about them? Don't raise your hand, but have you asked that question this week? Okay, I have. <laughs> I, I love that Habakkuk is so, what's the word? Human, normal. Kind of makes space for me to be real. Makes space for you to be real. Makes space for you to acknowledge the reality of relationship with God. So Habakkuk just lets God have it for the rest of chapter one. And if that's not bad enough, Habakkuk says, okay, I'll wait. I will stand at my watch post and station myself on the rampart. I will keep watch to see what he will say to me and what he will answer concerning my complaint. Yikes. Well, stand with me, let's be dismissed. Just kidding. I will wait. Tamara's use of this concept of waiting in all of the songs today, uh, it's intentional. We talked about it this week, and man, there's something Christian about waiting. Hey, there's, there's something Christian about being honest with God and bearing one's heart and one's anguish to God, there, there is. And there is something also that is Christian about waiting. List, oh, better get that. Uh, there is, and we need to say this, there is a great demonstration of faith here where the prophet is concerned. The prophet, if the prophet somehow were an atheist, and if he was an atheist, we probably wouldn't call him a prophet, but go with me. An atheist does not have any expectations that there is a God, much less that a God will do something good to help. Right? And so there is here in the voice and in the heartache and in the heart cry of the prophet a gesture of not just faith, but deep faith. Deep faith that says, God, I think I know you well enough to know that this isn't great, that you know that this isn't great. I think I know you well enough that you care for people just like me, like us, who are going through all of this. God, I think I know you well enough to know that you have a grand uh, desire that it would be something other than this. And so, God, having heard my complaint and believing that you do care, I'm going to sit here and wait and see what you say in response. And you know what? Here's what I would call that, faith. That's faith. Turns out Habakkuk is helping his people even as he goes through this. Look at verse two. And I don't know how long he sat up there before he got an answer, but apparently God was moved to answer. Then the Lord answered me and said, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so that a runner may read it. For there is still a vision for the appointed time. It speaks of the end and does not lie. If it seems to tarry, wait for it. Wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Now, 
important stuff here. Verse 4. Okay, look at the proud around you. Now, perhaps this means the Babylonians, but it might also mean some of the people of Israel. Their spirit is not right. They're not living it right. These English words don't do justice to the original language. The right kind of life does not function here in and with and through them. And this last phrase, for sure, should be translated something other than what we have here. But the righteous live by their faith. Now, I have said the word faith several times, and maybe because of the way that you were raised and because of the way that I was raised, when we hear this terminology of faith, what we think is, okay, my beliefs, the things that are kind of stuck here because that's where beliefs are, right? No, listen to me. Beliefs, beliefs, if they're truly beliefs, they're everywhere in your body. (laughs) Wherever your body is, there your beliefs are. And faith, faith should be a verb. We should be all faithing our way through life. Does that make sense? I'll I'll say it this way. God does not care as much about your capacity to articulate our beliefs mentally as God cares about your capacity to embody our beliefs bodily. So, given that that's what's being said here, the righteous, the right related to God, live by their faithfulness Here is what God is saying to a very impatient, anxious, angry Habakkuk. God is saying this. Wait well and live faithfully. I'm not absent. I'm not silent. And I'm not done. All right, hear me. I mean, if you're, if, you're, if you're Google searching to kind of come up with something that I'm thinking about, that's great. If you're not, this is really important. You need to listen to me. What God says here is, when God says, live faithfully, God is not saying, hey, make sure that you believe the right things. God is saying, with your body, while you're waiting for this answer, it's very important that you wait well and that you live well because, God says, I am not absent. I am not silent. I am not done. And then, to connect a few more dots, what God does here after this, I think he strongly and still gently takes Habakkuk on a journey, similar to the one that we see played out in the book of Job. I don't know if you remember that, but Job has a lot of terrible things happen to him. A lot of terrible things happen to him as bad as losing family members, as bad as having skin diseases. Like, there's a lot of things that happen. And Job, not unlike Habakkuk, starts to complain, complain, complain. But guys, there's room in faith for complaint. And hear, hear me, God is big enough to not be offended by your complaint, amen? It's okay. And your complaint doesn't have to be in the King James language. It's okay. Thou hast failest me. but God does here for Habakkuk what God does for Job and says Habakkuk I've been doing some things Habakkuk I want to expand your vision to see the larger thing that I am doing 
Habakkuk, I want you to expand your vision to see that not only am I doing things somehow where you are not, but I'm doing things across time in times when you are not. I am doing a bigger thing, a larger thing, and God says something that really resonates with me because of how attentive I am to the book of Revelation. God, God seems to be saying this, all of this is headed somewhere. All of this is going somewhere. God is not finished with God's creation. And again, if we're going to take any of our cues from the book of Revelation, God is saying there, and I think God is saying here, I'm going to win. I'm going to finish what I started. And I am in the process of making all things new. That's the rest of chapter two. God essentially says to Habakkuk, um, am I only God if I'm doing what you want me to do in your vision like this? Hey, believers, including myself, is God only God when God does exactly the thing that I tell God to do? Yes, we need to continue to have discussions about prayer. We, we need to continue to talk about prayer. We, we need to continue to talk about what it means to be a person of faith and a person who prays. But we need to be careful that in those classes and in those discussions and all of those lectures that we're careful, we need to be careful to say, hey, you can pray for this, and if it doesn't happen, God may still be God. Because God is doing a big thing. Is God still God if God is doing a big thing but not your thing? Some of you said yes, and some of you look like deers in headlights. Is that the right word, deers? No, it's just deer, isn't it? It's just deer. Is God still God if God is doing successfully and quite effectively God's thing, but not your thing? Well, there's great transformation in Habakkuk's life by the end of chapter two, <laughs> such that by the time we get to chapter three, look at verse two. Oh, Lord, I have heard of your renown and I stand in awe, O Lord, of your work. In our own time, God, revive your work. In our own time, make it known your work. And in wrath, may you still remember mercy. And then Habakkuk seems to go through now in chapter three, his own understanding, his own recitation of the story that now does include his recognition that God has done some things over time <laughs> to bring us to a place where we all can be people of faith, even though we are accessing and acknowledging somebody else's stories where God did something very big and very specific at the Exodus. In verse 13, Sabakic saying, I've seen it, Lord. You came forth to save your people, to save your anointed. You crushed the head of the wicked house, laying it bare from the 
foundation to roof. You pierced with his own arrows the head of the warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter us, gloating as if ready to devour the poor who were in hiding. You trampled the sea with your horses, churning the mighty waters. For 16, I hear and I tremble within. This is Habakkuk, the same guy who was yelling at God and pointing before. And I tremble within, my lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones, his bones get weak, and my steps tremble beneath me. All right, see if you can pray this. <laughs> I wait quietly for the day of calamity to come upon the people who attack us. But I'm going to leave it up to you. How about this? Though the fig tree does not blossom and no fruit is on the vines, though the produce of the olive fails and fields yield no food, though the flock is cut off from the fold and there is no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord and I will exult in the God of my salvation. I, I got to go back. Okay. See if you can pray this. Though the fig tree does not blossom and no fruit is on the vines. Though the produce of the olive fails and the fields yield no food. Though the flock is cut off from the fold and there is no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord and I will exult in the God of my salvation. Now, what I think perhaps has happened, I don't think perhaps that chapter three immediately followed chapter two. In my head, having heard the call to live faithfully, God recognizes that as we live faithfully, not always according to what our eyes see, but according to the call of God, that there is a, there is a way to live that adds to my wisdom, my sense of sight, my capacity to discern God where I couldn't discern God before, to, to hear God where I he couldn't hear God before. Listen, I want to be clear, what's being asked of Habakkuk, what's being asked of us today is this, to live not according to what your eyes see, but according to the call of God and the character of God. And the belief is, having done that over a period of time, we will be shaped to be people who have a clearer and clearer picture of the larger thing that God is trying to do, now that is a hard sell. Because some of you are in abject pain. And there are other gods who are saying dangerous things to you like, no, 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 A plus B plus C obligates God to D. Or other faith systems altogether that say, here are some guarantees I'll offer you. And here comes Habakkuk, and here comes God saying to you, no, I just live like you believe what I'm saying. And eventually you'll understand. What is poetry? 
That page has been ripped out, sir. Well, if I were somebody else's book. They're all ripped out, sir. <laughs> what do you mean they're all ripped out? Sir, we... Never mind. Read. Understanding Poetry by Dr. J. Evans Pritchard, Ph.D. To fully understand poetry, we must first be fluent with its meter, rhyme, and figures of speech. Then ask two questions. One, how artfully has the objective of the poem been rendered? And two, how important is that objective? Question one rates the poem's perfection. Question two rates its importance. And once these questions have been answered, determining the poem's greatness becomes a relatively simple matter. If the poem score for perfection is plotted on the horizontal of a graph... Mr. The Keating, they made everybody Why, sign Mr. Anderson? <laughs> you got to believe me, it's true. I do believe you, Tom. Leave, Mr. Keating. But it wasn't his fault. Sit down, Mr. Anderson. One more outburst from you or anyone else, and you're out of this school. Leave, Mr. Keating. I said leave, Mr. Keating. Captain, my captain. Sit down, Mr. Anderson. Do you hear me? Sit down. Sit down. This is your final warning, Anderson. How dare you? Do you hear me? Your captain, my captain. Mr. Overstreet, I warn you. Sit down. Sit down. Sit down. All of you. I want you seated. Sit down. Leave, Mr. Keating. if you know what poem that they are accessing there. But before I tell you that, let's, let's, let's examine what's happened here. He has helped them in a prophetic sort of way to have a better relationship with Scripture. Now it's been costly. Because if you know anything about the story, what has happened is somebody has died. One of the students has died. It's been ugly. And he has lost his job now, Mr. Keating has. And he's being, left, he's being allowed to leave the building and in shame. And it looks like, for all intents and purposes, that the other powers are creeping back in, except that they keep standing on the desk and saying, oh, captain, my captain. <laughs> it's a Walt Whitman poem written to commemorate not only the end of the Civil War and all the good that comes from that, 
but also the death, the assassination of Abraham Lincoln and all the pain that comes with that. Because here's the thing, life is both. And in standing and, and giving voice to this line, oh, captain, my captain, they were demonstrating that they got it. They got it. Here's a situation so difficult, so painful, and yet there's still some good in it. Habakkuk looks around. The situation is so incredibly painful, incredibly painful. And yet now he knows that in the midst of the pain, he can access that God is, in fact, up to, up to something. Remember this, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards judgment. Justice, I mean justice. That is Martin Luther King, but apparently he was quoting someone by the name of Theodore Parker, who says this, I do not pretend to understand the moral universe. The arc is a long one. My eye reaches but little ways. I cannot calculate the curve and complete the figure by experience of sight. I can divine it by conscience. And from what I see, I am sure it bends toward justice. Let me translate that for you. God is faithful. And God is not absent. And God is not silent. And God is not done. And perhaps your life does not immediately today where your scary and dark places are concerned. Perhaps, perhaps you feel like Habakkuk at the beginning of the book and not at the end. And I want to say this to you today. Welcome. Glad you're here so that we can pool our experiences and pool our perspectives and recognize, perhaps even if I can't tell you for sure myself, that somebody else in the room can say this right out loud, that God is good. It makes this that we're about to do all the more important, doesn't it? Because every week we gather we gather around a story that has to have been experienced both as good and bad at the same time, right? We gather around this table and hopefully our imaginations are funded such that we can experience both the freedom of expression where our frustration is concerned, even if those frustrations are aimed at God, but at the same time hear God say, I hear you, I receive you, I receive your complaints, and... I'm not absent, I'm not silent, and I'm not done. If you're helping us today, please come and set the table. Heavenly Father, help us today as we receive these elements. Help us to know a couple of things, God, that first of all, life with you, faith, is not a matter of getting the equation just right. Help us to know something else, God, that there is within this relationship because when it's not an equation, then it can be a relationship. Help us to know that within this relationship with you that there is room for us to be chronically human. Free us, God, to say what we need to say. Remind us that your mind about us is made up, that your heart is set where we're concerned and that all of that news is good. 
Remind us, God, that it is the experience of life and even Christian life that things can be unbelievably and incredibly painful and at the same time that we can know that you are not absent, silent, or done. In other words, God, take us on a journey that would in some ways be similar to the journey that we see Habakkuk on. The freedom to talk with you and communicate with you and the freedom that you would have to talk with us, to remind us of your nature, your character, and your way. In a moment, I'm gonna ask you to stand to your feet, to exit your pew to the left, and to come forward with your hands cupped to receive these gifts of God. As you approach someone holding a cup, I'm sorry, as you approach someone holding a plate of bread, that person will snap off a piece and press it into your hands and say to you, this is the body of Christ broken for you. Take that piece of bread, don't eat it just yet, but dip it into the cup. When you do, that person will say, and this is the blood of Christ shed for you. And then take and eat. And then I hope you will find a place to pray. Find a place to pray. If you will come to one of these front side padded altars, we will assume that you are there for a prayer for healing. And someone will meet you there to pray that prayer. It might be for a physical, but it might be for a mental or emotional or a familial, relational otherwise. Healing, and we will pray that prayer. If you come to one of these front kneeling benches, we won't assume a thing, but we will come and pray with you and even touch you on the back and neck or the shoulder so that you will know that you are not alone. You can, for sure, circle all the way back around and sit at your seats, but I hope that you will continue to pray. If, if you would like to make a special trip up here, we are even now refilling the baptismal. <laughs> if you'd like to make a trip up here and dip your fingers into this bowl, we hope that it will remind you of the moment of your baptism when you are included in this people who have a mission and a purpose patterned after God, God's self. Who is eligible to come to this table? Well, all of you who understand your need for grace. It does not matter if your equation-based faith has failed today or not. If you recognize your need for grace, you are welcome at this table. It was on the night that he was betrayed that our Savior took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body broken for you. And every time you eat of it, remember me. Later on, he took the cup and he held it up before them and said, and this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant. And every time you drink of it, remember me. And church, if you are in one of those painful situations today, may this nourishment allow you to last a little longer, waiting, living faithfully. Now all across the sanctuary, if you would, stand to your feet, exit your pews to the left and come forward with your hands cupped to receive these gifts of God meant for the people of God.